Well, hopefully you're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we continue our series entitled The End is Only the Beginning, a study of biblical eschatology, the study of the last days. Eschatology focuses on the last days prior to and just those days after the return of Jesus Christ. Christians from the very beginning have believed and still believe to this day in a physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And I say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. That being said, as Christians, we need to be aware and prepared by the word that is given to us in God's scriptures to be alert to the times in which we live. Now, of course, no one knows the day or the hour, but as I've said several times, I can advocate convincingly that we are 2,000 years closer than we've ever been before. But Paul the Apostle, writing to the church in Thessalonica, wrote to them because they had been stumbled, they had been confused, because they had either been told or written a letter stating that they were in the great day of the Lord a term that is adopted from the Old Testament that means a period of time in which Jesus Christ, God himself, not only judges the world for the wickedness of sin, but also restores the world into that pre-fallen condition which we read about in Revelation 22, uh, where we talk about a new heavens and a new earth. So what Paul did to steady the minds and the hearts of the people who were confused, set back, anxious, worried, fearful that they were now in this period of judgment, he now reminds them of the truth. And I find as a pastor, as a Christian, whenever, I am un, whenever I'm shaken by something or I feel the foundation is about to fall out underneath me, I always remind myself of the truth of God's Word. Once again, placing myself on a sure foundation. Allowing the storms of life to come, but not move me from the certainty of God's Word. And Paul simply reminds them of the truth. He reminds them that the truth can be embraced, believed, And it will steady and secure an individual in Christ. And so as we continue, we make our way now to verse 8. But let's start from the beginning in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, His second coming, and our gathering together to Him, that is, the rapture of the church, We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, the apostasy, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember, verse 5, that when I was with you, still with you, I told you these things. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The restraining one, as we identified last week, is the Holy Spirit working within the church that will be removed in the sense, in the economy in which he is currently working at the time of the rapture, allowing then for the rise of the Antichrist onto the world scene. And then Paul then says, though once he is revealed, the very first thing that Paul says before describing anything that the Antichrist is going to do here on this earth is further remind his readers of the fact that his reign will be short. The very first thing that Paul says in the reminding of uh, the fact that once he is revealed is also accompanied with the fact that he will be consumed and destroyed by the Lord's return. You know what that tells you and I? We won. We've already won. We've got to fight the battles day to day, but the war has already been won. And even when this individual rises to that place of prominence and power within the world, his time is short. His place and position in the world will only indicate that we are very close to our Lord's return. And when the Lord's return, there isn't going to be some big street fight between Jesus and the Antichrist. Bottom line, Jesus is just going to take them out. That's it. Over. Done. The three points that Paul wants them to know here is this. That the Antichrist will be revealed, number one. Number two, he will be consumed. And number three, he will be destroyed. The Antichrist is not simply one who stands in opposition to God or in place of God, but one who will try to be the antithesis of God, one who will place himself in a position that only God should occupy. And throughout the Bible, we are told of this one. I believe he's revealed when we come to Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2, when John writes, he says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Scholars believe that this is the reveal of the Antichrist, the one in whom Daniel in Daniel 7-8 called the one who was the little horn, as he viewed his rising to power this way. And I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up from among them, before whom the first three of the horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and and a mouth speaking pompous words. Daniel said that this Antichrist will come from the prince 
of the people who was to come in Daniel 26, the Roman Empire. But then, in Revelation 13, he is revealed at that moment that Jesus claims to be the abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24, where the Antichrist appears to have been wounded fatally, the Bible says. His right eye and his right hand withered away as Zechariah prophesied of the woeful shepherd. But then in three days he will appear to rise again. And people will marvel and hail him as a deity at that point. But the Bible says it's at that moment that Satan fills him. And he then ushers the world into one of the darkest periods, the last three and a half years of that seven-year period that we've discussed thoroughly throughout our series together, where the world experiences judgment like never before, to the point that if Jesus himself were not to return, he would not find anything left living on this earth, a horrific period of time. But number two... Not only will the Antichrist be revealed, but let us know that number two, Jesus will return. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16, the famous imagery given by the Apostle John while exiled on the island of Patmos. He describes Jesus in a very, very significant and unique way. And each and every one of of the elements of this description is a fulfillment of an Old Testament promise. Showing that in the second coming, this is what Christ is going to do. And purposely, it is contrast to everything Jesus did his first coming. Well, let's read it together, starting in verse 11. Of Revelation chapter 19. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Notice that the Antichrist also appeared in the same way. Satan is not a creator, he's a counterfeiter. And he counterfeits that which God has already done, even when it comes to the three day apparent resurrection of the Antichrist. I think someone else did that before him, you know, I think I read that somewhere. Satan is limited in what he can do. But this time, the Bible says with complete confidence that this white horse, well, this white horse carries a complete different individual. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with white robes dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed with fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. 
And He Himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And He who is, uh, and sorry, and He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is going to be awesome. I don't know about you, but I mean, this is better than Rocky coming back against Apollo Creed. I mean, this is it. That reference was from 1978. I have got to update my illustrations. What? Chris, were you even born then? Oh, you're older than we thought. No. Okay. This is going to be an incredible time. And we can look at this description with awe. And of course, you've most undoubtedly seen the paintings that have been created depicting Christ in this manner. And they're frightening, to say the least. But each one of these elements are a fulfilled promise of an Old Testament uh, promise given by God. And each one of them means something very significant. First and foremost, we see heaven open. When Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives in the book of Acts, He then ascended to the right hand of God. We see Him standing there as Stephen is being stoned and then being received by Jesus uh, after being the first martyred in, in the New Testament. It is from heaven where Jesus comes, once again reminding us that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ substantiated that Jesus is exactly who He said He was. And behold, He comes upon a white horse. Let us remember that when He came into Jerusalem the first time on the back of a donkey, it was significant. It symbolized to the people that He was coming in peace that he desired to restore relationship with them. Specifically, he desired to restore through his crucifixion and his resurrection the relationship that had been severed by sin to his God, our God the Father. But this time he comes on a white horse and a king approaching a city or the border of a nation upon a white horse means that that king has come for war. Jesus came as the peaceful shepherd the first time. He's coming back as the conquering warrior the second time. This confused the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and this is why if you read the Talmud and the Mishnah, you discover very quickly that they believed that there was two messiahs, one that was going to come in humility and suffer, and the other one that was going to come in great glory, restoring the throne of David, and bringing Israel back to the climax of their existence. But notice that this white horse is then followed, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. You know what that means? That the second coming of Jesus Christ once again substantiates every word of Scripture. It tells us that we can trust the promises of God no matter what happens in this world. That everything he said is true. And that he is faithful to everything that he has ever said. You know, it is written this way in the New Testament. Not only has God given us a plethora of promises, over 3,000 in the Bible, but he's also capable of supplying and giving, has the ability to allow those promises to take place. 
and in righteousness he judges. There is no corruption within him. There is no favoritism that he will afford. He will look at everything and everyone with perfect objectivity and hold them accountable to his written word. He judges perfectly and makes war. This is when Jesus says to Satan, enough is enough. This is when he takes the Antichrist and the false prophet and disposes of them for all eternity. And his eyes were like the flame of fire. Meaning that every wrong that had been concealed from human awareness has been viewed by God. Everything that's taking place, every corruption, every uh, abomination, every horrific act that's being done behind closed doors, in secrets, in the shadows, God has seen and will hold accountable. No one is going to get away with anything. And those eyes, a flame of fire, he is looking to hold accountable those who are guilty before him and who remain in their sins. And on his head were many crowns, not just one, many. John wrote it this way in contrast to the arrival of the Antichrist who wore a crown, meaning that he would have certain authority. The word many there in the Greek can also equally be translated all crowns. That Jesus Christ is going to return with ultimate sovereign authority. That's it. No more, no more wishy-washy. No more, you know, who's really in charge. He's going to take charge when he returns. And be, again, completely sovereign. He is now. But again, the sin of this world often distorts that fact. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. So I'm not even going to try to answer that question, right? I mean, we're not even going to go there and speculate. You know, I'm I'm not going to write my doctorate thesis on, well, Jesus' middle name is this, but we don't know what it is, you know. So anybody telling you what they know what that name means, they're lying, right? No one knew it but himself. You know, don't get to heaven and say, you know, I know your name. He's going to look at you and say, no, you don't. What are you doing here anyway? No, I'm just kidding. But in verse 13, then he says, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. What does that mean? The imagery may escape us, but in the culture that John wrote this, it would not have escaped them. This was imagery describing One who has come back in vengeance. One who is now going to avenge those who could not venge themselves or would not because they allowed God to do it for them. I think there's a verse somewhere, correct me if I'm wrong, where God says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And this imagery of this robe dipped in blood is saying, I've come now to avenge those who could not avenge themselves. During the tribulation period, there will be thousands of individuals martyred for Jesus Christ. 
The book of Revelation depicts them underneath the altar of God, pleading with God for their avenging. This is when it takes place. This is when it will happen. And his name is called the Word of God. Obviously, John takes us back to John chapter 1, verse 1 of his gospel, when he speaks of the Word of God, where he calls the Word of God, the Logos, the Lagos, however you like to say it, the one who is the perfect expression of God the Father. And this is where John establishes the deity of Jesus Christ, that he wasn't just simply a man, but he was 100% man and 100% God. John wants his readers to know that the one who came the first time is the same who comes the second. It is God himself. And verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us, guys. It says we come back on white horses as victors. We've won. And now we are simply following the Lord back for His establishment here on this earth to claim what is rightfully His that He purchased through His death and resurrection. It says that we are clothed in fine linen. It means that we are now draped with the righteousness of God in the glorified bodies that He promised us when He said in John 14, I go to prepare a mansion for you. As Paul looked forward to in 2 Corinthians 5, that that dwelling place not made with hands, we come back in that perfect state. We come back with Him at this time, no longer susceptible to sin or to death or the weaknesses of the flesh. But we come back with Him as those who have been victored by the incredible work of Jesus Christ. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. This is where God holds the world accountable to his word, his moral standards. The criteria of judgment of the individual is the Ten Commandments, that we could never fulfill in and of ourselves, and therefore were instructed by the Ten Commandments, as Paul says in Galatians, they became a tutor to us of our need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. The law was given that we may recognize the fact that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law was given to us to show us and remind us of the perfected standard in which God has for His creation that has been negated by the fall of Adam. So the entire world now will be held accountable to the Word of God. Individually, collectively, and nationally. Now, when John was writing this, he had been exiled to the island of Patmos. The Roman Empire was at its zenith. Claudius was now leaving as emperor and Nero was about to follow. The Christian church was being persecuted and hunted down. In fact, when Nero becomes emperor, 
There is a fire that takes place that Nero himself uh, caused in Rome that he blames the Christians for. And one of the greatest waves of persecution arose against Christianity. Pushing Christians to go further and further underground. To be terrified for their lives. And John, being exiled for the gospel on the island of Patmos. Oh, and by the way, he was exiled because he didn't boil in the oil that he put himself in. Um, they put him in. Excuse me. Can you imagine that? John, we're, I'm sorry you won't bend your knee to recognize the deity of Caesar. We are now going to boil you in oil. Okay. All right, jump in. Okay. John, you're not boiling. Oh, am I supposed to now? They were frustrated. They were, they were infuriated with it. So they just simply got rid of him, out of sight, out of mind, and they put him on the island of Patmos. And he's just sitting there. God spared him from that particular execution because he had more for John to do. In fact, the Bible tells us that there was a rumor that arose that Jesus would not return um, Jesus would return, excuse me, before the death of the Apostle John. That's very interesting. End of John tells us about that. But when he's watching this, understand that Christianity is so persecuted by the current world empire that they can't even make themselves publicly known. And now John is reading this, and Jesus Christ is going to write all things. All the nations will be held accountable. All will be dragged out into the light. All corruption will be done away with once and for all. All injustice will be done away with once and for all. By the sharp sword, the word of God, that he may strike the nations with his wrath. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. As you move from Revelation 19 into Revelation 20, the millennial kingdom of 1,000 years where Christ physically reigns on this earth from Jerusalem. Very interesting to read. And as he does so, he, he rules with a rod of iron. What does that mean? Well, going back into the Old Testament, you discover that at one point Israel lost their right of sovereignty they lost the ability to execute a person. They could not satisfy their own judicial system. They weren't allowed to by the Romans. That's why Jesus needed to be crucified and not stoned. If the Pharisees had their way as believing that Jesus was a false prophet, they would have stoned him. But they couldn't do that because they weren't allowed to execute anyone. They had lost their sovereign right. In the book of Genesis, it talks about the scepter of sovereignty for a nation. It discusses that, an, uh, that a nation who has that uh, degree of sovereignty can fulfill their judicial uh, justification, that's one word for it, but judicial consequence to the breaking of the laws of that nation. Jesus is saying that all human government is alleviated at this time and everything stops with him. He's going to reign over the entire earth. That's what this means. Now, this is, this is something to really chew on and to think about. 
And notice that he says, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. Jesus Christ did everything he could to save an individual, did he not? God stepped out of heaven, was born in a manger, and the picture that we have of Jesus Christ from the New Testament in his first coming, we have a babe that is born in a stable. An infinite being circumcised on the eighth day. A young boy who teaches in the temple. A carpenter who has grown up in a city of Nazareth. He was baptized by John. Three years in ministry. He came in on a donkey. He was betrayed and arrested. His trial and then he was tortured. He went before Pilate and kings. Before the people carrying his cross and dying on the cross. That's the picture that they had of Christ. Notice the picture that John's painting now is nothing like his first coming. This is when he comes now in all glory. This is where he enacts the judgment that God says that he has placed under the foot of his son. The one who we stand before in judgment is the one who has done all that he has possibly could do for us to save us. I don't know how much more righteous that can be. And then ultimately, as we close in Revelation 19.16, and on his robe and on his thigh a name was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, In our culture, it would just appear that this name was written. But if we go back into history to the time of Jesus, Second Temple Judaism, we discover that when Rome became a world empire, many of the Greek gods that were established were also adopted by the Roman Empire. And one of the unique characteristics of Zeus was that Zeus had inscribed on his thigh to Zeus, king of the gods. And therefore, John is now saying to us, it's not Zeus. It isn't any of the pagan gods. It's this 33-year-old carpenter from Nazareth who claimed to be God and was God and demonstrated that at the time of the resurrection. He now comes back and he is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One who had not moved or journeyed a hundred miles farther than the city of Jerusalem. And yet he has conquered the entire world, not by overthrowing it in his first coming, but by dying for the sins of the world. And then verified by the Father that on the third day he rose again. It is absolutely incredible to think of and to consider. But if you look on in Revelation 19, number three, the Antichrist is consumed. And John writes and he says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth 
and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire and burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The Antichrist is consumed by the breath of our Lord. The same one who spoke all things into creation. When he returns and the world stages that moment that we call Armageddon to resist his return. How futile is that, right? How futile is that? And yet, with the simple same spoken word from the mouth of our Savior, the Antichrist is consumed once and for all. For Isaiah wrote in 11.4, But with righteousness he that is God shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. As Dr. John Walvoord from Dallas Theological Seminary stated, he says, he will be killed, that is the Antichrist, and his works will be destroyed, brought to nothing. The shining forth of Christ's presence when he comes to the earth will immobilize the Antichrist program. And certainly as the revelation of the glorified Christ on the Damascus Road stopped Paul in his tracks, and terminated his program fighting against God. He's going to stop everything at that moment. At the return of Jesus Christ, Pastor Chuck Swindoll likes to sum it up this way, one of my favorite pastors. He says, first, Christ will return to fulfill numerous promises in the Bible. Each and every element of his description is a fulfillment of, that, of those promises. Second, Christ will return to judge the nations for their unbelief in Him. The one sin that keeps people out of heaven is the unbelief in Jesus Christ. Everything else can be overcome by receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. But the one sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin of the rejection of Jesus Christ. Third, Christ will return to remove Satan from his earthly dominion. I think about that moment of temptation that Jesus experienced after 40 days of, will, uh, of fasting and prayer. He went into the wilderness, was, was tempted by Satan. If you cast yourself off, God, your father's angels will take care of you. For I will give you bread because you are hungry. And then he says, as he rose Jesus to the pinnacle, he says, all of the world I will give you. But in each case, it would have suffered the consequences of diminishing and destroying the ministry and purpose of Christ. Because each and every one of those promises would have been given by circumventing the cross. 
Each and every one of those would have been satisfied, but yet apart from the cross. And Jesus, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, put everything in its place. And after succeeding where Adam failed, he then went on to call the world to repentance and to bring forth the kingdom of God, which we conclude with, because number four, Christ will return to establish his kingdom on the earth. The return of Jesus Christ. As Paul stated to us in verse 8 of Thessalonians, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Father, we thank you for your word.